Uh, We're continuing our series through Luke. Next week, we'll start an Advent series. Uh, We, the Hickman family, will be out of town. Ben Hine, who is the church planning apprentice at uh, Redeemer, will be preaching for us. Um, But we're we're here in Luke chapter 20. And uh, we find these these two uh, sections, um, this question asked to Jesus and then the the parable that he tells. And they, they both deal directly with uh, authority, with this question of uh, who has control, who has uh, authority. Um, I, I played football in, in high school and uh, began to realize, even if I didn't think about it in these terms, you began to figure out pretty quickly who had authority. We had a, a head coach. He had been head coach for a few decades at that point, had like records for number of wins in the state and all this kind of stuff. But he actually um, didn't really coach. Uh, we had uh, another guy who was the assistant head coach who, who was the one who really coached. But the reality is, if, if uh, Coach Rudolph, the one who was head coach in name, uh, if he came to practice and asked you to do something, you would do it. Uh, absolutely, you, you would do it. It's certainly true if, if Bobby Austin, the, the acting uh, head coach, he was the one that like, you would actually do things to try to uh, impress. Like He was the one that made decisions, right? And the same was true. There was different levels of authority uh, with uh, assistant coaches, position coaches, those sorts of things. And then you also learned that when you came in as a freshman or sophomore, that older players, uh, that they had some, if they asked you to do something, you, you would do it, right? It was a different kind of authority, but there was some authority there that you would listen to and that you would do. And so this question of authority is one that that we are regularly faced with because we regularly have it in our lives, whether it's authority from government or from bosses uh, or or whether we talk about authority from God. That's certainly what Jesus is doing here. And we live in this time where we could describe it as an age of suspicion uh, that actually there is more and more pushing against even the existence of of outside authority. And, And some of that comes, let's recognize that some of that comes because of ways in which authority, those in authority have failed us. And that might be political figures or other governmental fi- uh, uh, fixtures. It might be, um, it might be um, parents have failed us. And not in the sense that, like, okay, if you have parents or if you are a parent, there's going to be some level of failure, right? But some of us have unfortunately experienced like just abject failure from, from parents. Some of us have experienced failure from teachers or coaches. And unfortunately, many have experienced it from uh, those in authority in churches. Uh, that, that's a, a reality that many have experienced. And, and so part of what happens is we begin to recognize and talk about uh, failures of authority. It has put us in this place of, of suspicion of authority of all kinds. And, and it also fits together with this cultural move to focus more on more, more and more on the individual. Uh, we have what we might call expressive individualism, that the only, many would say that the only authority that we have is that that comes from within us, that nobody can tell us what to do, uh, that we can do whatever we want as long as it doesn't harm someone else, right? That, that's a fairly regular uh, theme in our culture. It's problematic for a number of reasons. And not just because we as followers of Jesus submit to his authority, but even just philosophically, the reality is even to say, I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't harm someone else. What if it harms me? And we would recognize that uh, we have 
the, maybe the responsibility to step in when somebody's going to harm themselves in particular ways. And then we would say, okay, well, what does it mean to harm somebody else? What is harmful? There are disagreements about that. Like individuals, we're focused on our individual uh, decision-making. We're going to come to different conclusions about what's harmful to either myself or to those around us. So what happens when those come in conflict with one another? There aren't necessarily easy answers there. But what we find in the word of God is a clear call to submit to the authority of God. Of Jesus Christ. We're followers of Jesus. We submit to his authority. He is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is God himself. Uh, this is clear teaching of scripture, clear teaching of the church for its uh, existence. And so we find Jesus addressing issues of authority here and, uh, and challenging sometimes our own notions of the way that we walk through life and think about these things. We're going to see that the authority is claimed, that the authority is challenged, and that uh, finally we'll look at the authority exercised. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with healthy, truthful understanding of authority in this age of suspicion, in an age when it is difficult sometimes to, uh, to live in light of truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So authority claimed. Let's remember the context here last week. Uh, we looked at the passage where Jesus comes into the temple. He's there teaching now at the beginning of chapter 20, but he's cleared the temple. He said, you guys have taken this place of worship and of prayer, and you've turned it into a den of thieves. You've, you've turned it into something that uh, just serves you and your own financial needs. But the temple was the place that represented the presence of God with his people. It was the place that you went for forgiveness of sins and to be in relationship with the creator with the Lord, with the God, with Yahweh is the Old Testament name for, for God, for his, his personal uh, name that he was in relationship with his people. And the, and the temple was central to that. And here is Jesus overthrowing the way things are done in the temple. And then he's teaching and he's teaching the gospel and he's teaching things that are pushing against the authority of the chief priests and scribes and elders. And so they here in verse two, they go to him and they say, hey, where does your authority come from? Who gave it to you? Because it's pushing against their own. And so he, even as we recognize, he, does, he, he says, I'm not going to answer you. It's very clear from the questions that he asks that he actually is claiming authority for himself. He, he goes on this whole thread about John the Baptist. What, why is he jumping back? To, to, they're asking about his authority. And he goes back to John the Baptist, who uh, we are aware of, but we maybe don't realize how central he is to the story. Uh, and, and certainly those hearing, they would have absolutely understood who John the Baptist was. And so Jesus asks them uh, this question in verse 3 and 4. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? What's he asking here? He's asking, uh, is, is John the Baptist's baptism, with which he baptized Jesus, is it from God? And that is heaven... Is, you know, we, we have this idea of heaven is just this place that we try to get to in the end. Uh, you know, clouds and harps and all those kind of things. No, heaven is the place where God is. Heaven represents who our creator is, who God is himself. So the question is, uh, does that baptism, does it come from God or does it come from man? Now, uh, the, the implication is that, that it comes from God, that Jesus comes from God. 
And that's where his authority comes from. Because what happened in the baptism? John had said that he comes preparing a way for the Lord. He, he references Isaiah chapter 40. And uh, in that, uh, there is this line of, of I come as a, one in the wilderness to proclaim the way of the Lord, the coming of uh, God's salvation, the coming of Yahweh. And, uh, and that is quoted by Luke in chapter 3 to say John the Baptist is playing that role for Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. He's coming after me. I'm pointing to Jesus. I'm here to say, here's the guy. Here's the salvation. Here's the Lord. And so when he baptizes Jesus, he is setting Jesus apart as the king. And there's some things that happen at that baptism in Luke chapter 3, where one, heaven opens up. The Holy Spirit descends like a dove, uh, anointing Jesus. And the Lord says... Here's my son with whom I am well pleased. So it's this picture of authority from heaven coming upon Jesus. He is claiming that kind of authority. And he does it all throughout his ministry. And he's doing it here. He's saying, I have authority. The implication is very clear. Now, the chief priests and scribes and elders, they don't know how to answer. They know it's interesting. They know what they think. They actually don't believe in John the Baptist. But they don't want to say that because it's going to threaten their authority. Because it's going to threaten their authority because all the people who love John the Baptist and think he's a prophet. And so they're like, "Uh, we're not going to say that. We're going to say, I don't know. Um, Because the problem for them is Jesus is exercising his authority and they don't want to lose it. They've tried to challenge him. They've tried to push uh, against his authority and the things that he's doing and, uh, and it's because it is challenging their own authority and they want it. And so they're willing to actually lie and say, I don't know. So then we have the next passage, this parable of the tenants. Who, uh, there's the owner of the vineyard. And clearly the owner of the vineyard has the authority. The, the tenants are wrong for throwing out the uh, throwing out the servants who come asking for some fruit of the, the vine. He, he has set up this vineyard. He's planted the vineyard. He's gone off to another country for a while, for a long while, it says. And he, then he wants some of the fruit. He's, he's given them this vineyard to tend. They're there to serve him according to his direction and for his profit. That's the way that, that it works, right? If you have a job and there's a boss who started a company and they hire you, you work for that boss. You, you do what he asks you to do. That's part of the job. That's part of the way that authority works in uh, just everyday life, right? If you own a home, uh, you have, or you even lease a home, you have some authority over it. And if somebody comes into your home or onto your porch and steals a package that you have authority over, then you, you rightly get upset, right? That's not the way it's supposed to work. There's a way that things work here, and that would have been clearly understood here. That the owner has rights to the vineyard and that the tenants are supposed to submit to his authority. And they clearly, they don't do that. There's a call for us to recognize the authority of God, to recognize the authority of Jesus. And it plays out in all kinds of ways. We talked about it a little bit with church membership. It's one of the ways that it plays out. It's not just like sometimes we make the mistake of saying, oh, yeah, I submit to God, 
But we really are submitting to our own view of God, however we might perceive him. This is the way individualism plays out within the church, right? So I submit to God as I understand God, as I want to understand him, the things that I want to listen to or don't want to listen to. I'll do those things. I'm submitting to God. But we're actually called to do that with one another. We need one another in order to do that, to not miss our own blind spots. We need the church. That's why last week we talked about the the significance of, of worship and gathering together to be shaped by the Lord as we gather together to proclaim and live out the gospel together. We need that. It is shaping in our lives. And, and oftentimes we, we know this is true to some degree. And so if we are the ones who are to tend his vineyard, his world, according to his directions, we, we know that we have his directions for us with the word. But we often like, I don't know that I really want to do a deep dive on that because I don't actually want to have to submit there. So it might be like, I don't really want to do a deep dive on fasting because I don't really want to have to deal with fasting, right? I don't want to do a deep dive on uh, maybe it's abortion because to, to take a position on that in our culture, that, that feels too tricky. Or I don't want to take a position. I don't want to do a deep dive on sexuality because then I would have to submit and I might have to take a position that's uncomfortable in culture today. And th- th- there are all kinds of ways in which we might say, ah, I don't really want to I don't really want to do a deep dive to know what the word of God says there. Uh, so I'm not going to. That's part of actually submitting. Because the reality is, we're, we tend to challenge the authority that Jesus is, is claiming here. We tend to push against it. I mean, this is the, the story of Scripture. This is actually the first sin, the fall in Genesis chapter 3, that, that God had authority, planting them in, putting them in the garden, planting the garden and giving them this beautiful place. But he put some boundaries there. But they didn't want those boundaries. They wanted to be in control. It's a problem ongoing, and we find it here. So just, you know, it's helpful to know that pushing against authority isn't something completely new in our culture today. Even if it's happening in different ways, in unique ways now, it's not new. It's been happening for thousands of years. And we find the leaders the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, as they go to him and ask this question, they're challenging his authority because they want to be, in, they're the ones who actually are in control. And Jesus is talking to them. They're the ones supposed to, particularly leaders, are supposed to be tending to the vineyard, tending to God's creation, to his people, and, and, and they're not. And so as he pushes against that, it's challenging their power and their comfort. And so they're, they're questioning. And then clearly the tenants are doing this in absurd ways, right? Beating up the servants that come. I mean, this is crazy, the level at which they're going to push against authority and ultimately killing the sign that is sent. I mean, when Jesus asked the question about what's going to happen, he says in verse 15, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? The question is the, the answer to that question is clear. There's going to be consequences because their rebellion against the authority is just wrong on so many levels. But the picture here is that we are the tenants, that we are the ones who are tempted, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, we are tempted to rebel against his authority. This again is the scriptural position. Romans 1 tells us that we suppress what is true, and instead of worshiping the creator, we worship the creation. Romans 8 tells us 
that we, because of our sin, because of our rebellion against him, we have natural enmity with God, hostility toward God. We're in this conflicting relationship with him. We don't want his authority. We want to be in control. We repress God's authority in our lives all the time. That is our temptation. And we we challenge it. We push against it. Psychologists today talk about, and have for years, talk about the, the danger of repression, right? We repress. Repression is the unconscious blocking of unpleasant emotions, impulses, memories, and thoughts from your conscious mind. And there are all kinds of forces, psychological forces, at work in our lives. And, and psychologists will note that repression uh, puts us in a position of actually having those things those things that which we repress having a significant uh, overdetermining influence on our behavior because we don't actually acknowledge what it is that we're repressing, so we can't deal with it, and then uh, it, it then affects our behavior in unhelpful ways. Um, and I think there's there's some level of, of truth to that reality, but what we're what we see in Scripture is that psychological force that we repress the most. Is, uh, is the authority that God has in our lives. That's what we repress. Now, there are some really unhelpful ways that we repress our emotions and, uh, and the experiences that we have in life. That's not helpful. And, and psychologists actually get at a lot of truth there. But underneath that reality and our tendency to repress our, our emotions, we have this reality that we suppress this call of authority upon our lives. And, and, and here, here's the truth. We always have conflicting forces uh, in our lives, and we're going to repress some and not others. That's just the, the way it is to live. And to just give it on an illustration on surface level, maybe your alarm goes off in the morning, and uh, you have a desire uh, to stay in bed and go back to sleep. And that is one force at work when there's another desire, another psychological force that says you should get up and work out. And one of those desires, one of those forces is going to be repressed. We just regularly in life are making decisions about which desires and which emotions and which things we, we might repress. And, uh, and Jesus is calling us uh, to repress the sinful ones and to find ourselves submitting to his uh, authority. Um, we're the tenants. We're the absurd ones that... Uh, reject the owner, and we reject uh, his authority in our lives. And we only are able to do so because the creator has put us here. Because the creator has given us life. He's created us, and he sustains our life so that we are here living and breathing, able to actually reject his authority because he has worked in our lives. So I was having a conversation. I thought this was timely with my sermon. I was having a conversation this week. Uh, with parents of a, a six-year-old. And the six-year-old has been planning uh, with a couple of her friends from school uh, running away. She's been planning on running away and telling her parents about some of the plans, right? Like, so they uh, know some of the things that they're going to do uh, in order to run away. And uh, it, it came to a point one day where the six-year-old got mad at her mom because her mom wouldn't drive her to her friend's house in order that she could run away. I mean, it's absurd, right? It's hilarious and cute. But that's who we are, right? 
That's exactly who we are. We get mad at God because he doesn't give us the freedom to rebel against him and to run away from him uh, like we want to. We are only here. That six-year-old is only able to get to her friend's house to run away if her mom takes her there. Right? That's who we are. We're, we're, and, and, and it's absolutely appropriate that she needs that kind of dependence. But we get old enough and we think that we don't actually live dependent lives. But what Jesus tells us again and again is that our entire lives are contingent and dependent upon him. So the question becomes, in what ways are we challenging and pushing against the authority of God? You know, I talked about some of those things we might not want to look into. I mean, there, there are ways in which our, uh, we don't submit our desires or the way we spend our money or the way that we spend our time, the relationships that we enter into. We don't think about how those play out in relationship to the authority of God. And oftentimes it's just we don't really want to give it a thought. Or we'd rather just hear from those that kind of affirm the way that we're going. I mean, oftentimes it's just, you know, uh, the inertia, whatever direction we're headed. That's where that's what we're going to do. And what we're called to do is actually seek to submit to pushing away from challenging, because the last point that we see is that there is authority exercised. That our lives, again, they are contingent and dependent upon the Lord. That we, we need to live in light of this reality that he has authority. And there are two ways in which he exercises that authority. And what, the first that we see in this passage is judgment. It's, it's pretty uncomfortable, in fact. So that when he asks this question, uh, what will he do when he comes back? That he, he asks that question. He says... Um, Sorry, I just lost it. What what then, in verse 15, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And and, and there seems to be some clear answer. We actually find in Matthew's account, in Matthew 21, that they say, they actually answer. Matthew gives their account. He says uh, that um, he will, I just lost, I thought I knew it, um, that, um, well, I lost it, but... uh, It's essentially that he will put these wretches to a horrible death. You know, nice, pleasant words. He's going to put these wretches to a horrible death. That's the consequences that the tenants should have for rebelling against uh, the owner of the vineyard. And Jesus is saying there are consequences. He goes on in this passage to say the, the son who has been rejected, he quotes here from Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is a clear reference to himself, to Jesus being the stone rejected by the leaders. At this point, it's the chief priests and the scribes and the, um, the elders. They reject him. We know that because Jesus is saying these things about his authority, they're going to kill him. This is actually the reason that they're going to kill Jesus. And Jesus goes on to say, There are consequences. You reject and there are consequences. Verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. That there are consequences for the tenants who rebel. It's it's heavy. It's uncomfortable. It it doesn't fit well uh, in our current culture. That we're sinful, we have hostility to God, and there are consequences to that, and they are devastating. They are destruction for us for eternity. 
And, and, and maybe you're thinking, oh, the, you know, the pastor is trying to, to scare us. And at, at some level, the scripture is doing this. And I would be unfaithful not to say that there are warnings in scripture that there is destruction when we rebel against the authority of God. They were actually called to not do that because there are consequences if we challenge and reject his authority. And that's heavy. But the answer isn't, okay, we'll just get it together and obey. That's never the picture of scripture because we find a, a God who not only exercises his authority in judgment, that actually first and foremost, his posture toward us is one of grace and love and care, of kindness and gentleness, of giving us multiple opportunities to repent and believe and turn and trust in his authority. We find it here in this passage as he sends servant after servant after servant. And then finally his son, he's giving them multiple chances. He's patient with them to submit to his authority. And this is a picture of history of the way that he's worked with them, sending the prophets whom they have rejected and beaten. Read the Old Testament, read about the prophets and what they did to Jeremiah and to others. They mistreated him. This is who he's talking about. And now he sent his son and his son is Jesus. Going back to Luke chapter three, the baptism where John baptizes Jesus says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. God sends his son, that cornerstone in order to bring forgiveness, in order to give hope. So that when he says that the stone that the builders rejected, there'll be consequences for rejecting, became the cornerstone, became the place for hope, became the place that the grace is offered because he is saying these things, he's going to die and because of his death, we have forgiveness offered to us. So that there is hope in this person who has authority. His authority is exercised by dying for us, by drawing us into relationship with him because of what he has done, because we fail and continue to fail to live in light of his authority. And then he gives us forgiveness and then he draws us into relationship and he empowers us more and more to submit to his authority, more and more to flourish and live as he's created us to live. He absolutely cares about us as individuals. I mean, ultimately, individualism comes because the church said, no, our identity is found in more than just the group. It is both. But the identity that, is, that comes out of being individuals is because we're created in the image of God. Every one of us created in the image of God. It's not because it comes from within and we're able to define ourselves and uh, give ourselves our own authority. No, it comes because we are dependent upon God. But it does matter. Our lives as individuals matter, but then it draws us into the people of God. It offers forgiveness so that we, in ultimate submission to him, we rest and trust in him. Yeah, there are all kinds of ways in which we're called to submit. All kinds of ways in which it plays out in life. But ultimately, it's saying, I'm not my own authority. I'm dependent upon God, and so I rest in him alone. That's where real hope comes. That's what we find at the table as we celebrate That Jesus, because he said these things about his authority, they killed him. And that sacrifice was for you and for me. So that we could submit to that authority by resting in the work that he did. By resting in what he has accomplished for us and finding our hope there. Not in our own strength. I mean, the reality is if we trust in our own authority, we're going to fail ourselves and others every time. But Jesus in his authority loves us, 
cares for us and provides for us deeply. Let me pray.